Welcome to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Prachi Gupta, senior reporter at Jezebel. And Joanna is still out this week, so joining us is Ellie Sheckett. Hi, I'm Ellie Sheckett, staff writer at Jezebel. So this week, Donald Trump threatened to unleash, quote, fire and fury, unquote, on North Korea, which is... I don't think it's hyperbole to say it's like this. It's actually the scariest thing that he has said yet. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. He has been very threatening uh, beyond a normal statement. And as I said, they will be met with fire, fury and frankly, power, the likes of which this world has never seen before. Yeah, it was quite upsetting. It was, I mean, over the over the many months that he's been president, I've sort of slowly stopped feeling anything, but this sort of broke through and I got real anxious. Real anxious. Real anxious. It's, and it's like, you can't even do anything about this anxiety. Like, no, you, you can't. I mean, it's kind of like flying in a plane. Like you really can't, you're not in charge of what happens to you. Right. Or <laughs> it's kind of like waiting to get nuked. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that. <laughs> Um, so Trump said this during a briefing that was actually supposed to be about the opioid crisis. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. And in fact, uh, the New York Times reported that he made that shit up on the fly. Um, the briefing materials in front of him were opioid talking points. They had a meeting beforehand, a conference call, briefing the president on these developments and agreeing on a tough statement in general. What the president then did with that question did take some of his advisors by surprise. And he said all of this in his New Jersey golf club, where he is currently on a 17-day vacation, except for it's kind of raining and not that nice, so he's inside tweeting and, and like, saying shit. Also, can we just pause for a second that he's vacationing in New Jersey? Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Yes. Like he is, he, uh, <laughs> there's so many things. About I, I mean, there's, story. I don't even know where to start, but like he, like in, in addition to all of his many other faults, he certainly does lack imagination. <laughs> um, well, not when it comes to talking about North Korea. Right. Exactly. Well, exactly. Yes. You're, that's fair. Fair. So North Korea responded by threatening to destroy Guam. Then they announced that they'll have a plan ready to strike near Guam by mid-August. The AP now reporting that the North Korean regime is calling President Trump's words a load of nonsense saying they will complete their plan to, quote, attack waters near Guam by mid-August. Which is not as bad as literally hitting Guam, but would still be an unprecedented provocation. And it's kind of, it's not funny. I don't want to say funny because it's really not funny, but the way that Kim Jong-un is speaking about Donald Trump, he's speaking about Donald Trump as though Donald Trump is the crazy one, and that's not entirely incorrect. Right, the one who looks sane here is not Donald Trump. It's the authoritarian dictator. Right. I mean, so this is what Kim Jong-un said. It is the judgment of a strategic force that normal dialogue is impossible with such a foolish man out of reason. And teaching him a good lesson with absolute power is the only way for the settlement. Kim Jong-un is a literal evil cartoon character villain. And he is, I think, more sane than our president. Like, experts are saying... The North Koreans aren't suicidal. They're not going to do something that will lead to their destruction. 
I'm not sure if I could say the same thing for Donald Trump. He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. It is scary when the voice of sanity in the room is the dictator of North Korea. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to guess that an unusual number of stress ulcers were born on Tuesday night when he when Trump made this announcement. It's kind of like the opposite Honest, of a baby boom. I, I mean, like I was watching Twitter and because I'm I have a life and <laughs> and all the jokes were about obviously like nuclear war and just dying and I was like, "You know what? I can't. I can't. Like yeah. I can't. I can't do this to myself cuz I'm going to get really worked up <laughs> and really upset and really scared and then and then what? And like Fucking Trump. Like, I just, I can't. Right. I feel like when Trump is done with us, literally no one is going to want to have sex or reproduce. We're going to be like those kangaroos that stop having sex when there's a drought just because we're so, like, stressed out and afraid. <laughs> like, nobody wants to bring kids into this situation. Well, on that note, <laughs> so our dick of the week this week is the recently created Presidential Commission on Election Integrity which is a very fancy name for a very terrible new initiative from the Trump administration. And we're going to be talking to ACLU attorney Julie Ebenstein about it. These all sound like details, right, and small changes to election laws, but they're not. They're very targeted. But first, our week and weenies. Our first weenie is Pastor Ralph Drollinger, who, according to a report from the Christian Broadcasting Network, is leading a Bible study for members of the Trump cabinet, which in itself is a little, you know, but Drollinger is an evangelical Christian who's best known for once chastising women politicians as sinful for spending time away from their kids. And this is what he said. It is one thing for a mother to work out of her home while her children are in school. It's quite another matter to have children in the home and live away in Sacramento for four days a week. Whereas the former could be in keeping with the spirit of Proverbs 31, the latter is sinful. Anyway, so this is the guy that's like leading a Bible study. Uh, the people in the Bible study include Betsy DeVos, of course, Jeff Sessions, of course, uh, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue, and CIA Director Mike Pompeo. Um, Mike Pence, sort of a Mr. Evangelical, is also popping in when he can work it into his schedule. So... An L.A. Times report noted that the goal of Pastor Ralph's ministry is to infuse the, quote, impact of the gospel into, quote, every strata of government as public servants who have been immersed in the word of God move from tier to tier. Um, so that is scary. <laughs> oh, my God. We've just—we've become a country of evangelical <laughs> Christians. It's just— that's what this country is now. I mean, it will never stop being funny that Donald Trump has become the evangelicals vehicle for transforming this country <laughs> into a theocracy. The, like, man, the man who has no convictions or beliefs <laughs> at all is now responsible yeah, for like, ushering in this extreme <laughs> form uh, of religion. Like imagine how many awkward conversations they're all having with God in, in private office, <laughs> explaining it away. Oh, man. It's sort of bleak and scary. Well, on another bleak and scary <laughs> note, because there are so many, um, our second weenie of the week is Texas abortion bill HB 214. So HB 214 just passed in the Texas House, and this bill is 
surprise, another anti-abortion bill that would <laughs> basically block private insurance companies or insurance companies under Obamacare to pay for abortions. Uh, so if you want to abortion, like, fuck you, you have to pay out of pocket because it's not like a health or medical expense. I can't imagine being as dedicated to anything, like literally anything, as Republicans are to denying women autonomy over their own reproductive systems. It's really, they really do have an obsession they have with been the, chipping with, away at this for so long. With vaginas, long. honestly. Um, yeah. There are also no exceptions for rape or incest. The only exception is for when a mother's life is in danger, which— Oh, that's, we, that's nice of them. Yeah, yeah, so— <laughs> That's sweet. Yeah, very thoughtful. Um, yeah, so this bill, very evil, just passed the House, and if it passes the Senate, then it will probably be signed into law. Great. On a much lighter note, Sean Spicer is our last weenie. I mean, the weenie of my heart, really. I He's- miss him. <laughs> In a fucked up, very fucked up way, I, I realize. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do. I knew I would miss him, and I knew what came after him would be worse, and I was correct. Yeah. Don't want to brag, but I was right. So Sean Spicer is out of the White House, uh, not out of our hearts. He's actually not out of the White House because he agreed to stay on through <laughs> August because he is a weenie. But um, if anybody expected his dignity to suddenly regenerate once out from under the thumb of Donald Trump— It didn't. (laughs) Uh, You might think that Spicy would have some harsh feelings towards his former boss because he did quit. Um, But he is just tweeting away, lending his support however he can. One thing that happened is, uh, so according to a Vice report that cited anonymous sources, under the guidance of Spicer and Reince Priebus, RAP, Trump got a folder twice a day filled with positive news about himself, including, quote, sometimes just pictures of Trump looking powerful. (laughs) Um, So Spicer responded to the the story with a tweet. He said, congrats to Alex Thompson, the writer, and Vox.com for not letting facts get in the way of good clickbait. Unfortunately, (laughs) the piece was published at Vice, not Vox, which is a really embarrassing mistake for a former press secretary to make, but exactly the kind of thing that I, I have learned to expect from Sean Spicer. I love it. I love it, I love too. It. I do love it. I mean— He can't get basic facts right. He it's just never will. Beautiful. It's fine. I'm oh God, I'm, I'm, I'm glad he's still, like, semi-around, and I don't know what I'm going to do when he's— I wonder what he's going to do next. I don't like, know. Like, where, where can he go from here? I mean, the other day he was at a baseball game having the time of his life. Having a ball. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I've just never seen somebody um, physically fall apart in front of my eyes the way that Sean Spicer did. Like, he turned gray. (laughs) I mean, first he turned orange and then he turned gray. I can imagine him being, like, a beleaguered college admissions officer. I can't like, imagine. I mean, really anything beleaguered. Like beleaguered anything yeah. with like just beleaguered like slightly worn it. down by, you know, bureaucracy <laughs> and like just trying to get by. And then, yeah. but then like also like extremely resentful of everybody he works with and for, but then also wants to try to do something helpful and good, but just keeps getting in his own way. Right. I mean, he really does seem like a character from office space. Yes. <laughs> Like a really fed-up white-collar guy. (laughs) Yes.
And now joining us is Julie Ebenstein, a voting rights attorney at the ACLU. Welcome, Julie. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the current situation on voting rights and voter suppression and those initiatives from Donald Trump, can you talk about the Supreme Court ruling in 2013 and walk us through what's happened since then and where we are basically, like a general overview for our listeners? Sure. So in the summer of 2013, there was uh, the Shelby County decision from the Supreme Court, which really did away, um, at least temporarily, with one of the primary protections of the Voting Rights Act. Um, it used to be that a number of different states or localities had to seek preclearance, basically approval from uh, the Department of Justice or from a three-judge panel in D.C. before they implemented any changes to voting policy. And that was to determine whether or not the new change was retrogressive and had a, a negative effect on racial and language minorities. So we had this strong protection against discrimination in voting up until 2013, when the Supreme Court made a decision that basically rendered that inoperative. 2016 was the first presidential election to go forward in the last 52 years without the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. Do you think that this contributed to Donald Trump's Electoral College win? It's hard to say whether it contributed to that outcome. We certainly saw a wave of voter suppression laws passed beginning in 2008, but then intentionally discriminatory voting changes following the Shelby County decision. And that's in both North Carolina, where we've litigated a case there for three years, and the Fourth Circuit found that the law that passed was intentionally discriminatory, and in Texas, where uh, the courts now found a number of times that the law passed there immediately after Shelby County was discriminatory. So whatever the outcome on who was elected as president, certainly a lot of people were excluded from voting and were disenfranchised because of the laws that passed. Can you tell us more about those laws? Like, what are they? How do they work? What what about them is discriminatory and who are they hurting? Let me take the example of North Carolina. The law that was passed there imposed a number of different restrictions on voting and took back a lot of provisions that had provided people with access earlier. So the new law that we challenged and defeated imposed voter ID, for example, got rid of same-day registration, which had been hugely effective in giving more people access to uh, to casting their ballot, got rid of a week of early voting, which was really significant for people to be able to find the time or the childcare or the time off of work to make it to the polls and cast their ballot and got rid of out-of-precinct voting on Election Day, which means that uh, it used to be people could go to a variety of polling places on Election Day to cast their ballot. After this restriction passed, they could only go to their single assigned place. These all sound like details, right, and small changes to election laws, but they're not. They're very targeted. The decision from the Fourth Circuit found that the North Carolina legislator had, uh, with surgical precision, as they put it, taken away the... Um, laws that provided additional access for African-Americans. So we saw a very targeted effort on the part of North Carolina to pass laws that resulted in disenfranchisement for the black community there. So the Trump administration has asked every state to send in voter information, um, arguing that this is somehow related to voter fraud. What should voters make of this? Can you talk a little bit about this commission? So the commission's really gotten off to a spectacularly bad start. Right. <laughs> um, we can all agree, people across the political spectrum, election administrators, experts on voting, that we all want uh, safe, fair, transparent elections. That's 
That's always the goal. This commission doesn't do that. It was created by executive order and constituted soon after with people like Chris Kobach, um, one of the truly the, the primary offenders of voting rights based in Kansas. And the first request from the commission was for the data of every single voter, some very personal data that shouldn't be uh, flippantly collected in one place. Now, a lot of states, I think it was 40 states, refused in whole or in part to provide that data to the federal, to this commission. And rightfully so, there was also uh, seven lawsuits filed against the commission, including ours, to prevent it from going forward in this ad hoc, disorganized way, which could really cause privacy and other harms down the line. Based on the response from election officials, the commission then said, wait, hold on, don't give us that data yet, and then went forward again and said, okay, give us the data, but only give us the data that's publicly available to others in your state with regard to your state laws. Now, that doesn't really solve the problem, right? First of all, because a lot of states um, may consider giving special privileges to this commission, for example, allowing them to access data that that a normal citizen making a request in that state wouldn't be able to access. And there's still a concern over consolidating all that information in one place. So there are still privacy concerns, even with the new data request of the commission. On top of that, what are they going to do with this data? We don't know how this data is going to be reviewed. We don't know. There hasn't been any transparency on the methods that are going to be used to analyze this data and what the reason for looking at it is. I mean, it would seem from uh, from a lot of observers' perspective that this commission is just created to back up somehow Donald Trump's claim that three to five million people voted unlawfully in the last election, a claim that that's just bogus. It's never it's never been supported by fact of any kind. Right. And is there also a cybersecurity issue here? Because it doesn't seem like they're particularly organized or particularly aware of how to protect information. Can you talk at all about that? I don't know the the real tech details mm -hmm. of what would make that data safe. And there's a chance that the commission doesn't either. Right. right? So, <laughs> so states that have uh, states that have shared data with other states, for example, to see when a voter has moved or relocated to another state, there's strict laws in place for the most part from that state on how and where and when that data can be shared, who has access to it, the security precautions that surround it. And they've taken the time to create a secure system for their state's data. There's no indication that the commission has done that. So I think that's an additional concern that we should all have, that this was just cobbled together very quickly and could have irreversible effects on all of our privacy and data security. For example, in in New York State, Andrew Cuomo was one of the governors who made sort of a bombastic statement against this commission and said, you know, we'll never give our voter records. And then he doesn't actually have authority over that. And it turns out that New York, it was reported that New York is going to hand over some records. So this idea that most states aren't complying, is that is that number going to get smaller as reality sinks in? Do you think that states are going to largely fall into line eventually? The Secretary of State is the uh, actor in most states who administers elections. So the initial data request from the commission went out to secretaries of state. And again, the pushback from about 40 of those secretaries for sharing the data. 
I can understand why a secretary of state um, who wants to run clean, fair elections doesn't want to hand over their voters' data. And in fact, in states like Colorado, it's been reported that thousands of voters wanted to cancel their registration to avoid having their data sent to this commission. It's hard to say what data secretaries will release now that the request has been narrowed, but I think it's important to to keep in mind that uh, whatever the, the breadth of this request is, the commission itself just doesn't seem to be focused on serving a valid purpose. It really doesn't address a lot of the issues in voting and instead focuses on this boogeyman of fraud, which has just been put forward over and over again to justify suppression. about that fraud because that's something that Donald Trump has clung to since the election. Even though he won the election, he's still obsessed with this this claim that comes from nowhere. Um, so where did the idea of voter fraud come from in the first place? And I mean, how common is it? And why is it an issue that Republicans seem to be particularly interested in? Right. Well, like you said, in a sense, the, the number itself came from nowhere. So we have Donald Trump as a candidate and then uh, later on as president just saying numbers. You know, there hasn't been any evidence to back up anything even remotely close to the numbers that he's just been throwing around. People who do look at evidence, those who study elections and federal courts who adjudicate election-related claims, have not have found infinitesimal uh, indications of any sort of fraud at all. And when you think about how small that number is, I mean, the Brennan Center did uh, a study looking at elections from 2000 until 2014 and found 31 cases of voter fraud. And I think that's about a billion votes cast during that time. So this is not a problem that exists, and most certainly not to the extent that President Trump, like you said, despite winning the election, is uh, claiming. Where does it come from? I think it comes from an attempt to use voter fraud or voter confidence as a justification for passing suppressive and repressive laws. So when we take one of these states to court to challenge one of the laws that they've passed, uh, in a lot of instances, they have to explain why they passed the law. What rational basis do they have for passing this law this change to their elections, given the detrimental effect that it would appear to have on on voters. And so the the go-to justification is oftentimes voter fraud, voter fraud. Now, you have states like North Carolina, where in three years of litigation, the Fourth Circuit found that they had failed to show even a single instance of in-person voter fraud that they claimed justified this repressive law. So uh, over years and nearly 100 witnesses and tens of thousands of documents and a very expensive, time-consuming attempt to prove that there's voter fraud, they still didn't manage it. And that's, that's not coming from me. That's coming from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. But that is the, the focus of state legislators attempting to justify laws that, frankly, are just unjustifiable. 
it sounds like voters are sort of at the mercy of their states right now in terms of what happens with their data. Is there any recourse that we as individuals, as registered voters have to make sure that this doesn't end up, you know, where we don't want it to be? Well, like with everything else, let your representatives know. So, and this is one of the principles really of elections and and democracy that voters should choose their representatives. Representatives shouldn't choose their voters by way of suppressing some votes out of democracy uh, or gerrymandering votes out of democracy. You still have the power to let your representatives know that you don't want any part of this and you don't want your state to take part in this. I would certainly not suggest that people cancel their registration, but I think that they should uh, let their state representatives or their secretary of state know that this is something that the voters of that state are hugely opposed to. My big question is if this commission moves forward and if these voter suppression laws continue to proliferate, what are the risks here in terms of the ability of our democracy to function in 2018 and 2020? Do you think a significant number of people are at risk for getting knocked off the voter rolls? I certainly think that this is part of a coordinated effort to knock people off the voter rolls. I also think it's one that's not going to succeed because of groups like ACLU and, and other organizations that litigate and challenge these sorts of repressive laws. We should be doing everything we can to encourage, not hinder, people to get out and vote. And uh, whenever a state or a locality tries to do the opposite, I think it's important for us to challenge those laws in court. And also, as communities, make sure that uh, when you can, you provide access to get around these laws. So we saw people in North Carolina who, out of their own pocket, were just driving their car around to help friends and uh, neighbors get to the polls. It's a real barrier if you don't have access to registration to go to the polls. You see uh, what in North Carolina they call souls to the polls, which is church groups going from church over to all cast their ballots together, a good way for people to get whatever sort of assistance, transportation or otherwise, they need to get to the polls. So there's things that I think the legal community can do to challenge these laws, but there's a lot of day-to-day activity with registration or with helping people cast their vote that anybody can get involved in doing. What are the specific fears that the ACLU has with regards to how the Trump administration might use this data if they get their hands on it? Well, we're concerned about a few things. Uh, There was a recent example, actually, earlier this week. We have a case in front of the Supreme Court out of the Sixth Circuit in Ohio, where Ohio had a process by which they removed people from the voter rolls, first made them inactive after two years, and then after two election cycles, removed them from the voter rolls. This case is now going to the Supreme Court to determine whether that's allowed by the NVRA or what most people know as the motor voter law. It was very concerning to find out on Monday that the Department of Justice had switched sides, not only in this case from their prior position at the Sixth Circuit, but from their position that they've taken since 1993 when the NVRA was passed. So this just speaks to our concern that there's going to be a targeted effort to purge voter rolls and to remove registered, validly registered voters from the rolls. We've seen with a program called Crosscheck, which is run by uh, or was originated by Chris Kobach, who's now the co-chair of the commission, that there are about 200 false positives for every hit when they're comparing data to see if somebody's registered in two states. 
we see in the executive order that created this commission that the definition of uh, someone who's unlawfully registered is just someone who's registered in a place where they're not eligible to vote. Now, that might sound terrible to people, but you could easily move from one state to another, and there's a lag time before you're taken off of the your prior residence roles. We saw that with Tiffany Trump. We saw that with Steve Bannon. Uh, we saw that with people uh, who would be removed eventually, and we're not committing fraud by any means, but we're just going through the normal registration process and moving process. So we're concerned for the security and privacy of voters' data. We're concerned that this commission doesn't really seem to take any interest in election integrity, uh, certainly doesn't intend to address voter suppression or our depressed turnout or anything like that, but instead will take any evidence they could even marginally argue uh, shows any indication of irregularities and just use that to pass laws like what we saw in North Carolina and in other states. So what do you think uh, the government should be focusing on instead of this idea of voter fraud? Well, America has a a serious access and turnout problem. Only about 60% of eligible voters vote in presidential elections. That number is much lower for interim federal elections and for local elections. So we need to really focus on what is preventing people from voting. A lot of the time that's a registration barrier, that's an access to the polls barrier or something else. That's what needs to be addressed. Uh, Secondly, we need to continue to address discrimination in voting. There are highly sophisticated tools that you can use now to see, for example, how a change in law will make voting more accessible or deny access to the franchise to groups of people, whether that's uh, geographically by party or by race. And as a country, we should just have absolutely no tolerance for continued discrimination in voting. Do you think that there should be an automatic registration? So they have um, automatic registration now in, in states like Oregon, which has uh, increased voter registration by quite a bit. So just simply making registration easier. Just saying when you go to get your driver's license, when you engage with the state and other capacities, uh, the default position is to register you. You can always opt out of that and say, no, thanks, I don't want to register. But to have the default position be, yes, I want to register, makes a huge difference in turnout. So yeah, I think I think that's one of the many modernizing changes that we can put in place to um, improve elections. And we should be focused on things like that instead of chasing around this fraud boogeyman, who, which seems to um, never get caught. <laughs> this, this administration has been chasing a lot of boogeymen, yeah, a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of boogeymen running around. Um, but thank you so much for joining us, Julia. It was great having you here. Sure. Thanks for having me. for the best segment of the show, How to Handle the Dicks, where we take a second to discuss the ways in which we're coping with this onslaught of stressful information. Ellie, how are you handling the dicks? Prachi, I am doing so much retail therapy. I hate to say it, you know, um, but I am really giving in to that. I have just purchased a beautiful lamp and I 
I this is like weird, but I'm like a little horny for this lamp. Like it's like <laughs> the beautiful copper. Oh, I love it. Um, it's wasn't like that expensive, but I'm yeah. So I bought a lamp. I also bought retinol cream, which is like pretty, you know, high tech, cool stuff. I've just been really purchasing a lot of things um, to sort of distract from the deep sort of growing hole inside of me. Oh, <laughs> that sounds extremely healthy. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. What are you doing? I've been working out consistently. Dang. Which, what kind of workouts are you doing? I run a lot. That's cool. And that's a huge stress reliever. I do, well, <laughs> people who listen to this podcast already know exactly <laughs> what I do because I talk about it all the fucking time Like because I'm really freaking obnoxious. And I do Krav Maga. Oh, uh, Krav Maga. <laughs> which I do really enjoy. Sorry. I know. You're like making me kind of want to do Krav Maga. Do it. I get, so I can bring, they do like a free trial class for people. Well, you bring so, them to the office so, to do like an office I mean, training event. Like, whoa, whoa. I, I don't think I can, I don't think I can swing that, Allie. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you can do, you know? Um, <laughs> But people can come with me to a class and see how they like it. I would potentially be down. I mean, I would like to feel a little bit less completely defenseless. I mean, yeah. it almost feels like it would be dangerous for me to be slightly not defenseless because then I would like be overconfident right. and really get myself into a lot of bad situations. Ellie would just go into alleyways looking for yeah, looking people for to trouble. Beat up. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to risk that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I do, like, some workouts from—I downloaded that Kayla It Signs app because I was just, like— like, I like working out, but I don't necessarily—I'm not good at, like, coming up with a plan. And yeah. so it just, like, gives you a plan. So I just do it whenever, like, I'm not doing one of those other two things. Kayla It Signs And I just really... don't really—but, like, I don't, like, do it otherwise. Like, I don't. I don't know. She's There's really like a whole big. freaking community she, around it. Which she kind of looks like um almost like a sim. <laughs> like when she does like her little sit-ups and stuff, it's like you don't have that's not a real body. You you like don't feel anything that you're doing. You're just you just keep doing the sit-ups and right. shit. Like nothing happens. You're like not even sweating. Uh she yeah. So mm, I st I used to follow her on Instagram and I had to stop. It was uh, <laughs> it was not helping me handle the dicks. Yeah, <laughs> I get that. so much for listening to Big Time Dicks, and thanks so much to Julie Ebenstein of the ACLU for joining us. This episode was produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Dries. Mandana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader. This episode was mixed by Brad Fisher. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find the show. You can also find us on Panoply, NPR One, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Got a Big Time Dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag bigtimedicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then. Bye.